We interact through story. It's how we know ourselves. Uh, it's how we understand our own history. It's through story. Welcome to Drexel's 10,000 Hours Podcast. Our goal is to mine the stories behind our region's innovators, inventors, and thought creators. We'll be talking to experts in subjects from fashion to neuroscience to find out what lies behind the passion for their work, the inspiration for their ideas, and the motivation for their creativity. I'm your host, Maurice Baynard. Nomi Eve is the author of Henna House and The Family Orchard, as well as a number of short stories and essays. She is also the director of the Creative Writing MFA program at Drexel University. She primarily writes historical fiction that draws on a deep and personal connection to her Jewish heritage. So I love to start with people's childhood. I'm really interested in where people come from and if they think there was anything in their childhood that was predictive of who they would become as an adult. So where'd you grow up? Well, that's a great question, and yes. <laughs> um, so I grew up in Elkins Park, which is in Cheltenham Township, just you know, 25 minutes from here, from Drexel, by train. Hmm. Um, during the year, we lived in Elkins Park, but in the summers, we spent two months of every year living on my grandparents' small village uh, called a Moshav in Israel, hmm. um, along the coast of the Mediterranean. And we lived there really for a full two months every year. So even though I was born in the States, I really come from two places and traveling back and forth to Israel um, absolutely impacted not who I am as a person and who I am as a writer in many different ways. So I, many of us understand what it means to grow up in the States, but growing up in a different country, especially something as exotic as Israel what do you? What are some of the things that you think you took away from that part of your formative years that we wouldn't understand or that we haven't had the opportunity to be ex, um, sure. exposed to? It's not like going to summer camp. Well, it's funny that you said that because I did go to summer camp in Israel. There you go. <laughs> um, so there are two ways for me to look at this, and I've thought about this a fair amount over the years. Um, first of all, how did growing up in two places impact me as a writer? Hmm in general, and how did it impact me or lead to me being the sort of writer I am specifically? And in general, I think that um, this, my story of growing up in two places is probably a pretty common one for many different creative people, um, because when you are uh, forced to look at the world um, through different eyes, um, whether uh, you have a disability or your family comes and goes from different places or you are, you know, your own personal identity is different than that of uh, the people that you're growing up with, um, you become very much an observer of um, how other people do mm -hmm. things. You're on the outside. And I think that I often felt, um, whether in the States or in Israel, a little bit on the outside because even though I very much belong to both places, um, you know, I was never in Elkins Park in the summer. So I never went to the township pool where all my friends did. I, the first time I was ever there, I was a parent. Uh, it was my first summer wow. I ever right. spent in the place that I grew up. And conversely, in Israel, 
I speak the language, but not 100% fluently. Mm. I make mistakes. I don't understand everything. And um, obviously, I wasn't there during the school year, only in the summer. So it was always, to this day, a bit of an outsider in a place that I call home. And when you're an outsider, you develop ways of observing um, how do people do that so I can fit in more, so that I you know, know the words, so that I can pretend I belong here more. Um, and that's what artists do all the time. We observe and we pretend and we um, try and get it right, um, what it's like to live in somebody else's skin. Um, we uh, develop you know, ways to empathize with people who are not necessarily us because, you know, my book has characters in it. Well, I'm not all of those characters. I put little bits of myself in each one and I have to learn how to empathize with them and and appreciate their worldview. So I, I think that as artists, we often grow up with a sense of a defamiliarization. We're strangers in our own home um, and we learn to cope and adapt and um, develop skills that then help our art. So that's one big answer. Uh, and then the other one is just as a writer of my books, mm. I mean, I write uh, my, my, my characters in Henna House, um, even though, you know, I'm writing about a family of Yemenite Jews and I've never been to Yemen. Um, I, I had a village childhood um, at my grandparents in right. Israel. And it wasn't the Israel of today, which is a hyper-modern place. It was a place where the roads were only just paved, and some of them were still sandy. And, you know, uh, people rode donkeys around the, you know, the village, and we went to collect our eggs from somebody's house. And it was very much a village childhood, not as um, ancient feeling as the ones that my characters lived in Yemen, but I, I think I had enough firsthand personal sensory knowledge of what a village childhood was like in order to easily imagine myself into that space. So were you a reader as a child? And if so, what were you reading? <laughs> I was a voracious reader as a child. I remember my growing up through books, what book I was reading at what time and what place. And uh, no greater pleasure was looking at the stack of library books that I like, couldn't wait to dig into yeah. from the Elkins Park Library um, or, or filling out my name on my first library card. Like That's one of my earliest memories. What you were reading, when, when yeah. you re what you were reading during the school year here in America was at the same sorts of things that you were reading during your summers? I'm assuming that as a voracious yeah. reader, you were carrying books on yeah. planes. And yeah, that's a good question. Well, I... You know, I, I go. It all goes back to Narnia. <laughs> Those were, as, as all great uh, yeah. things do. <laughs> Those were. Are we um, okay? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. We're lion, witch, and wardrobing <laughs> it now. When? How old were you when you first cracked open that book? Those books. A, a I'm CS guessing it was book. probably ten, eleven. Um, and then I read and reread and reread them. And I, I think that those books um, give such an amazing. Um, model of why we read you know we read to open that wardrobe and to go yeah. through the magic door and to find a new world so the very story itself is instructive in why we like to lose ourselves i was in wondering stories. so yeah yeah so yeah. what did you find inside that story that sort of galvanized your intention i remember reading it and i remember i was um really fascinated not just by the lives of the children i, I mean i think mm -hmm. all of us are really interested in the way people live and other cultures, yeah. 
but also sort of the swashbuckling and and warring and yeah. two big parties and light and big and you know evil darkness yeah. and light. I think that all of that, you know, all yeah. of the magical creatures and this other world. I think also there's this fundamental kernel to what goes on in Narnia, which is that hmm. um, those kids uh, didn't know who they were and who they were was revealed to them to be uh, different, other, more magical than they thought they were. They had identities that were uh, hidden inside of them that were conjured out by Narnia. And I think that we all go through life feeling like either that's about to happen to us or it should happen or we want it to happen or we need to make that happen. We need to conjure our own magic selves. And we do that by becoming the people we're really meant to be, whether that's an artist, a scientist, um, an athlete. And I, I think that... For me, that really is what those books did for me. Um, yeah. of, of all the artistic forms, it seems like writing is the one that is mysterious to the general public. And what I mean by that is we all think we know what it means to be sort of an, a visual artist in your studio, painting someone sitting on a chair. Or even if we can't dance, we know that they show up every morning at their studio and they do that thing with their leg as they hold on to the bar. But... People don't understand what authors do. It just seems like one day they walk into a room and then they come out with a full-blown manuscript. What's the hardest thing about what it means to be a writer in the fact that what you're doing is not in public? Uh, okay. I'm going to unpack that question a little bit. Is that okay? Please. Okay. Uh, first of all... Um, I, I, I totally get that there's great mystery to how a novelist writes a novel. Yeah. But at the same time, what I encounter is that uh, we live our lives through story, right? Mm. When you get up in the morning and go through your day and then you uh, come together with your loved ones in the evening and say, what, how was your day today? What did you do today? And you... You answer that with a story. Oh, this happened, and then this happened. You'll never believe what happened, right? We interact through story. It's how we know ourselves. Uh, it's how we understand our own history. It's through story. And story is the building blocks of what we as authors do. And so I often find that people don't quite realize it, but they themselves... Uh, are natural storytellers. Everyone I meet is a storyteller because we live our lives through story. Now, in terms of what authors do is, well, we make people up, right? So like the stories that we are telling aren't necessarily our own. And so what we're doing is we're translating that natural biographical talent we all have to live our lives through story into an invented world. And that's Maybe where the magic is. How do you make people up? How do you, right? So I had the opportunity to read the first chapter of Hannah House and really would like to talk about the Yemenite Jewish community, how you came about understanding that there was such a thing. Did you start with some historical fact? How long did you do research to kind of understand what that was like? Sure. Um, so I'm an Ashkenazi Jew, which means that my roots are in Eastern Europe, mm -hmm. um, the Ukraine specifically. Um, I have an aunt who is a Yemenite Jew, and I'm actually named for her late husband. Um, and so I've always had a very special bond with her. Mm. Um, 
And when I was thinking about a second book, um, I'm a historical novelist. If I'm not learning while I'm writing, I'm not interested in what I'm writing. I have to be learning about history mm. to, to do my work. So I was looking into um, all different sorts of Jewish history because that's my subject matter. That's what nourishes me is, right. is Jewish history creatively. And um, I, was, I started to go really curious about um, my the person I was named after, his name was Chaim. My middle name in Hebrew is Chava. Uh, Eve in Hebrew is Chava. And I grew really interested in Chaim and his story. He was a Holocaust orphan. He made his way alone across Europe after the war, ended up in Israel, um, became a, married a Yemenite Jewish woman named Ahuva. Uh, he became a paratrooper and uh, very sadly was killed in 1967 in Jerusalem. And I was, I was born in 68 and named for him. And um, so I, I grew interested in his history and I started to do a lot of reading. And um, he married this Yemenite woman named Ahuva and that led me to start researching Yemenite Jews. And the second I started to read about the history of the Yemenite Jewish community, it was like falling down a, a rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. And I grew so interested in um, that time and place. And I spent a year researching before I wrote a single word. So I really, really um, read very widely and before I, I felt like I could begin to write. And let me just say that um, I didn't take it lightly um, that I was writing about a community not necessarily my own. Right. Like, you know, people say, oh, Jewish, they're all Jewish. Well, no, like Jews come in all different colors from all different places with all different life experiences. Um, and I really felt like if I'm going to get this right, I need to do my work. So, um, you know, I, I read really widely from a variety of sources um, and then started to make it all up. <laughs> Love to talk a little bit about um, teaching other people to write, as opposed to being a writer oneself. So, uh, a long time ago, in another life, I dreamed that I was going to go to the Iowa's Writers Workshop, get an MFA, and I was going to uh, win the National Book Award. <laughs> little known fact. Um, so, what what makes a person go? You know what? I want to not just do this for a living but I also want to help others figure out how you do it. So, uh, okay. You only dedicate yourself to this, to a creative work, whether it's uh, living a life of a, a novelist, a poet, a musician, uh, a visual artist, if you don't have any other choice. Mm. Okay? If you're going to do it no matter what. Right. Uh, because you're not going to make a living at it. And I say that as... Uh, as somebody who is director of an MFA program, I, um, you know, tell students that you cannot rely upon this degree or this experience of being a writer to make money um, mm. because there's not a lot of money in it. Um, look, maybe you'll sell a book. Maybe you'll sell another book. I hope you do. You know, that's my ambition for my students is that mm. they um, find ways to get their work out there in the world. But it's not a reliable source of income. So, um 
the only reason you should do it is if you don't really feel like you have a choice. That no matter what, you're going to make these words, you're going to paint these pictures, you're going to make this music um, because that's part of your life journey. But it, you must separate that from thoughts of earning a living, having a, a professional um uh, getting a, a paycheck because it's just not there. It really isn't. Mm. Um, for a few people, it will be, um, but that's few and far between. Um, so I counsel people all the time, only do this if you don't have a choice. Don't do this if you feel like this is a whim. So what are the essential things then that you do hope your students take away? If it's not the ability to turn their craft into a living, clearly you think it's important. What are the types of things you think a student who's well, considering an MFA sure. might take away. Sure. I, you know, I don't think it's going to translate directly into a paycheck. Okay. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't teach people about craft mm. and industry. I believe really strongly that we can teach people about um, how to uh, structure a plot so that it's compelling, how to craft compelling characters, how to use language in inventive ways. There's how to harness time in your narrative so that time is actually working for you as a writer and not against you. There are dozens and dozens of things uh, related to craft that we can teach people so that they can make stories um, that people want to read and not put down. We can do that. Hey, we absolutely can do that. We can also teach people about how to write a good query letter to get an agent, how to um, um, submit to magazines to get your stories published, how to uh, craft a novel that uh, fits a certain niche in the market. Um, we teach our students about market awareness and about about how they can position themselves so that the work that they make actually is a chance of being published or produced. We can do that, okay? That's, and that's very different from saying, I can train you for a job where you're gonna get a certain salary. Right. Um, so that's what we're about. We're about helping people learn market awareness and develop craft skills, um, and also sort of step into a community you know, a community of writers who um, will help them both with craft and with industry. Here, read this for me, my fellow student. We graduated four years ago, but you're still a reading partner for me. Um, hey, I just, you know, published a story. Can you share the link on your Facebook page so other people read it? It's in this small magazine. I won a contest, right? We are helping our students develop a community that also will nourish and sustain them for years, uh, forever, hopefully. So what are you um, writing now? What are you real or researching now? So for a long time after Hannah House, I, um, I didn't write because I always need to take a break. And then I wrote a book that mm, will never go anywhere. It will sit in a drawer. How do you know that it's never going to go? Like, what's, what becomes the challenge? You know, at a certain point, uh, it just doesn't feel right. Hmm. So it didn't feel right. It was done with. Let me just say it was done with. Yeah. <laughs> You're afraid but, it's going to get published posthumously? Like, no, no, no. someone's going to find it or like, no. there's another. Right. Okay. They can do that. If they want right. it, they can okay. do that. But um, finally, I actually went back to Yemen. And I'm writing another book set in the same time and place. Um, I 
realize I'm not done. Um, and I have another there are story more stories. to tell. Yeah. And I am right back in. Um, I am right back where I started. Other than being historical, um, Jewish, female focused, short people. <laughs> Blue eyes. Blue eyes. <laughs> are there themes that run through all the stories that you're telling? Is there something that, that no matter you're trying what I write, to share? Yeah, world? no matter what I write, it's a love story. And um, if my um, if I don't feel great love for my characters, and if my characters aren't wrestling with love uh, in in their lives, then I'm not interested. And that's all different kinds of love. That's love for brothers and sisters. That's love for cousins. That's love for romantic partners. Um, I would say over and over again. Um, I'm also interested in stories that um, are set against a richly symbolic landscape in which um, things have other meanings, in which there are ritual objects, holidays, um, uh, you know, stories that people tell, Mm. uh, henna that has, you know, symbols in it, um, ritual objects that that the decorations on them mean things. I'm very interested in symbolism and in what we can learn about ourselves and the lives we live through the symbols that we surround ourselves with. So I can't let you get out of here without asking what you think the future of reading is in an ever-increasing Netflix world. Oh, didn't there, there was some like BuzzFeed article lately, or I don't know what it was, that like people actually visited libraries more times than they watched Netflix. I don't know if I Yeah, I want to see the numbers on that. Yeah, I totally don't believe that. (laughs) No one's sitting up in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. going, you know what? I got to go to the library. Right, I totally don't believe that. But I, I really do believe that like to go back to something from the beginning of this conversation, yeah. that we know ourselves as human beings through story, and mm. we crave story. Whether it's through Netflix uh, or through books, people will always be hungry for story. And that's going to change how it's delivered over you know the centuries. Um, but I have no anxiety about people no longer wanting to read stories, hear stories, watch stories, because it's part of what nourishes us, helps us understand ourselves, and helps us grow towards the future. Nomi Eve, thank you for being on the 10,000 Hours. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed every minute. Drexel's 10,000 Hour Podcast is hosted by me, Maurice Baynard. Our producers are Sean Fitzpatrick and Nathan Barrett. Drexel's 10,000 Hours podcast is powered by Drexel University Online. 